In this episode of the Fine Art Photography Podcast, five legendary movie directors who were photographers first. Hey everybody, Keith Dotson here, and in this episode we'll be discussing the photography side of five major film directors who worked as photographers before the lure of the silver screen came calling. We'll be talking about the work of Anton Corbin, Stanley Kubrick, Gordon Parks, Agnes Varda, and Vim Vendors, who all started out as photographers. Have you ever seen a movie where the scenes were so well composed that you knew the director had a strong eye for photography? All movies are quite visual, of course, but there are some movies where nearly every scene looks like a fine art photograph. One of those for me is the 2010 action film The American, starring George Clooney, directed by Anton Corbin. Filmed in 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio, there's a scene early in the film with two characters walking across the smooth, white expanse of a frozen Swedish lake that is as beautiful as anything I've ever seen in a film or in many landscape photographs for that matter. The American was shot on Kodak 35mm film negatives with digital intermediate 2K master and printed to 35mm film in anamorphic format using Aericam and Aeroflex cameras with Cook S4 and Angino Optimo lenses. Anton Corbin is a Dutch photographer and film director. As a music aficionado, portrait artist of countless famous and influential rock musicians, and creative director for bands like U2 and Depeche Mode, you might expect Corbin to be a gregarious party animal, a wild man living the rock star lifestyle among the musicians he knows and works with so closely. After watching the documentary Anton Corbin Inside Out from 2012, it's quite obvious that the exact opposite is true. In fact, Corbin is such a solitary figure. So reserved and withdrawn, one wonders how he ever managed to successfully interact with larger-than-life characters that he photographs. Even more so, how did he manage to direct a major motion picture like The American? Filmmaking is the consummate group effort, requiring hundreds of participants to bring the director's vision to fruition. Through sibling interviews, we learn that Corbin comes from a loving but non-demonstrative family. His sister tells us there wasn't much communication in the household. The together but aloof upbringing resulted in a feeling of loneliness, which in turn caused Corbin to become an observer, to develop his artistic sensibilities. Corbin himself admits in one especially candid sequence that he lacks the ability to form close relationships. On my question, how does he do it? That's answered in the course of the documentary. In fact, he does it very well. We see Corbin at work photographing bands like U2 and Metallica. As a photographer, he seems to travel light. Unlike most commercial photographers, he doesn't bring a truckload of gear and an army of assistants. Rather, he carries one or two cameras and shoots on location in natural light. Celebrity portrait photography is a genre that I find particularly uninteresting, among the lowest tiers of photography in my opinion. But even this, Corbin handles with raw power. His contrasty black and white shots pepper the documentary and they are exquisite. If you've seen The American, you know that its pacing is unusual for an action film. That pacing seems to be the pacing of Anton Corbin. Slow, quiet, stoic, deliberate, but also a little raw. It's a movie that people tend to love or hate. I loved it, but as a photographer, I especially enjoyed the visual aspects. Every shot is framed beautifully. Corbin's siblings express worry about their famous brother Anton, who is a workaholic. 
He isn't married. He has no children. He travels extensively and basically lives to work. This is a commonality I noticed from another photobiography that I watched recently. Daido Moriyama, the highly regarded Japanese street photographer, who essentially abandoned his wife and children to go live in Tokyo and pursue his singular passion of photography. Both men faced dilemmas and consequences as a result of their total dedication to their art and careers. But if you're talking about someone who is way beyond driven, singular, and ultimately demanding in their vision as an artist, it has to be Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick, director of some of the greatest movies ever made, had a reputation as a demanding taskmaster on the crews who worked for him. Some of his staff were downright terrified of his temperamental outbursts. Others would receive phone calls and requests all hours of the day or night. Kubrick made one of my favorite movies, Dr. Strangelove, shot in black and white, but also he made a 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Barry Lyndon, Full Metal Jacket, and many others. But before all of those, he was a stills photographer. He worked in high school as the official high school photographer and later sold photographs to Look Magazine in New York. At just age 17, he was brought onto staff at Look as an intern and then became a staff photographer. He was assigned to photograph jazz musicians, including Frank Sinatra. He documented scientific researchers at Columbia University. He photographed circus people in Florida, and he did a series on the extremities of life in Chicago, which produced one of his most iconic images, a stark night scene looking down onto traffic on a wet Chicago street. Funny to note, after what I said about the personality of Anton Corbin, a fellow look photographer once said he didn't think Kubrick had the personality to become a film director, noting that he was too quiet. But Kubrick's photo essays proved that he was able to tell remarkable stories with photographs. Self-portraits of Kubrick from his Look magazine days in the 1940s show him using a Raleigh Flex twin lens reflex camera or a 35mm Leica. The website Cinema Tyler says Kubrick owned a Graflex, which was a gift from his father, who was also an amateur photographer. Kubrick would most likely have used a Graflex pacemaker speed camera at Look because it was the standard of its era among photojournalists. Cinema Tyler lists Kubrick as having owned a Kodak Monitor 620, several models of Raleigh Flex, a Polaroid Pathfinder 110A, an Icon F, a Leica 3C, and a Hasselblad. That's great research by Cinema Tyler on finding all that level of detail, and I'll include a link to their page in the description. On the set of Full Metal Jacket, actor Matthew Modine carried a Raleigh Flex TLR onto the set to break the ice with Kubrick. But in true Kubrick control freak fashion, Kubrick told Modine to get rid of that old piece of junk and then proceeded to tell him exactly what camera, lenses, film, even camera bag to get instead. And in case you're wondering, he recommended some model of a Minolta 35mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I think it's safe to call Gordon Parks one of America's greatest photographers ever. He was the creator of a ton of highly regarded black and white documentary work for the Farm Security Administration. That's the same federal government program 
that employed some of the greatest photographers of the era to document American life during the Great Depression, including Ben Sean, Walker Evans, Dorothea Lange, Marion Post Walcott, and many others. To get to the FSA, Parks had to overcome a ton of hardships, including some pretty severe racist incidents. At age 11, three white boys tried to drown him by tossing him into a river, knowing that he couldn't swim. He remained underwater so they wouldn't know he made it to shore. He also attended a segregated high school where his teacher told him that attending college would be nothing but a waste of money. Yet he survived all that and much more. After leaving his home in Kansas, he lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for a while, then Chicago, doing a series of jobs, even playing piano and singing in a brothel for a while. At age 25, he was impacted by a series of photographs in a magazine and subsequently bought a $7.50 camera in a pawn shop and began teaching himself the art of photography. One break after another saw him getting better and better photo assignments leading up to his job at the FSA. His photograph, American Gothic, Washington, D.C., was made in August 1942, and of course, it was a riff on the famous 1930 painting American Gothic by Grant Wood. The photograph of a cleaning lady named Ella Watson was spontaneous. Park spotted Miss Watson working after hours in the building and asked her to pose. The two were not acquainted, but became friendly enough that Parks made many other photos of Ella Watson and her family, but the first image remains the most powerful and the best known of the series. In asking about her, Parks learned that Watson was working to support her family, her grandchildren, because her daughter had died in childbirth. There was a lot of dignity, maybe even a little attitude in Miss Watson's face. Lit from her left with a single flash and framed by those vertical stripes of the giant U.S. flag looming behind her, pushing down on her tiny shoulders like the weight of the world. Another strobe in the back, at the bottom left of the frame, accentuates her silhouette against the simple background. The background is slightly out of focus. Even though the flag was important to the concept, this is very much a portrait. Look at her face. What was she thinking? Was she annoyed that this young man was interrupting her while she was trying to do her work? Was she skeptical? Park said Miss Watson questioned the idea of posing in front of the flag. With the politically charged nature of the photo, Parks was, in a way, biting the hand that fed him. The purpose of the FSA photographs was to document aspects of the federal government's projects. And with his very first photograph, Parks made what he himself called an indictment of America. Parks' boss at the FSA, Roy Stryker, famously told Parks, You're getting the idea, but you're going to get us all fired. Remember, this was 1942, less than a year after the attack on Pearl Harbor. America was at war. Patriotic emotions ran high. The civil rights movement was still 20 years in the future. Needless to say, the negative went unused and was filed away into the Library of Congress. But Parks, realizing he had captured something potentially epic in the frame, went to the library. And as he said in an interview, luckily there was a black guy in charge. Parks was able to temporarily slip the negative out to make a print, which later became one of his best-known and most powerful images. He made incredible photographs on assignment for Life magazine, shooting influential people from Malcolm X to Barbara Streisand, as well as gang members. He published two books on photographic technique and shot fashion spreads for Vogue. Later, Parks went on to become the co-founder of Essence magazine and was the director of the 1971 movie Shaft, starring Richard Roundtree. The only female on our list, Agnes Varda, was an influential Belgian-born filmmaker who worked in France. She was known for her movies that predated but contained some commonalities with the famous French New Wave film movement of the 50s and 60s. Her films were shot in a documentary realism style with social commentary, especially around feminist issues. She seemed to see little separation between her work in film 
or still photography, saying, and I'm quoting here, I take photographs or I make films, or I put films in the photographs or photos in the films, unquote. Bardo went to school at the Louvre, studying art history with the intention of becoming a museum curator. However, photography caught her fancy, and she changed to the Vaugirard School of Photography. Her initial work in photography was whatever paid the bills, portraits, weddings, etc. She later worked as the official stage photographer for a theater in Paris, and then as a photojournalist. In making her first motion picture, for which she herself admitted she had no experience, she said she used still photographs to help design and frame the individual scenes. And now, everybody, we arrive at the fifth and the final, but certainly not the least of our photographers turned filmmakers. Probably my personal favorite of the photographers listed here, German filmmaker Wim Wenders, spelled with W's, of course. Wim Wenders has made 50 films and videos, including the 1984 cult classic Paris, Texas, and the documentary Buena Vista Social Club. His stunning still photographs have been exhibited in art galleries and in museums. It was research seeking film locations for the movie Paris, Texas that gave Vendors the opportunity to travel the American West shooting his remarkable, saturated color photographs of landscapes, small towns, and abandoned buildings. He drove through Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California with a Makina Plabel 6x7 camera. Those images became his collection called Written in the West, which was first exhibited at the Centre Pompidou in Paris and published in the year 2000 as a book. Vendors revisited the region 30 years later with a Fuji 6x4.5 camera. His western photographs are only part of his work, but they're my favorites, suffused with the gorgeous light and the right mix of loneliness and independence to portray the American West. You can see Vendors' photographs on his website, vim-vendors.com, and again, that's spelled with W's. Well, that's all I've got for this episode, everybody. I hope you enjoy hearing about these movie directors who started out as photographers. Here are a few other photographers who later made films that you may also want to check out. Robert Frank, known for his influential book The Americans, was a filmmaker. Ken Russell, who directed the movie Tommy. William Klein, who made Float Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee, and others. And Tim Hetherington, a UK filmmaker who worked mostly as a photojournalist until he was killed in a war zone in 2011. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again real soon.